Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The 2020 presidential nominating contests are just over the horizon, and Democrats are already lining up to compete for the 2020 presidential nomination. In the third edition of her book, Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates, published by the Brookings Institution Press, senior fellow Elaine K. Mark explains how the presidential nomination process that we know today came about how both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump won their contests in 2016, and what to expect next year. She's in the Brookings Podcast Network studio today with Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Press. Also on today's program, Rubenstein fellow Alina Polyakova talks about her background, what inspired her to become a scholar, and some of the books she's reading. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcast. And now, here's Bill Finan with Elaine K. Mark. Thank you, Fred and Elaine. Hello. Thanks for coming by. Hello. Thank you. The newest edition of your book, Primary Politics, is about how Americans end up with their presidential candidates, and you just issued a third edition of it. This newest version explains how, in November 2016, the choice for American voters from the Democratic and Republican parties were, respectively, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. The greater question in most people's minds, at least in mine, will be, why Donald Trump for the Republicans? But let's start with Hillary Clinton. How did she end up getting the Democratic nomination, and what does it tell us about the primary system we have in place? But actually, in fact, maybe first a brief history of how the system came into being. It didn't always used to be this way. No. In fact, the modern nomination system is just about 50 years old. And it came into being between 1968 and 1972 as a result of anti-war protesters within the Democratic Party who were very unhappy at being cut out of the 1968 Democratic Convention. As you may remember, some people will remember and others will have to go to YouTube to see, the 68 convention was pretty riotous Mm -hmm. inside the hall and outside the hall. And one of the results of that was a reform commission. Now, the interesting thing, and it's an interesting thing that happens all the time in history, is no one really understood at the time what the reform commission was doing. But essentially what happened is the Reform Commission took the nomination system, which used to be a system that went on inside a political party, and made it a system that was open to the public. Yeah, and that's something, a theme that runs through the book, the idea that the nominating process used to be within the party, and then it became, I want to call it more democratic, which it is, but at the same time, it took away the political party's role in naming candidates. Both political parties have basically abdicated their role of choosing their candidates. And this is unique among the Western democracies. In most of the other Western democracies, it is party members in some way, party leaders particularly, that choose the candidate that's going to be either their president or their prime minister. The United States has gone further than any place else in making this a wide open system. 
So I'm just curious, going back to 68 in Chicago, 1968 in Chicago, was the violence we saw there, was that a result of the parties having control over the nomination process? And was there really an actual need for opening it up to more people that primaries were a proper response then? Well, what happened in 1968 is that the party leaders made a very faulty judgment about the level of antagonism towards the war, towards Lyndon Johnson towards his successor, Hubert Humphrey, and they ignored the new energy that was coming into the party, and they suffered greatly for it. They suffered greatly. They lost in 1968. They lost again in 1972. On the other hand, there were some good things that happened. I mean, this coincided with African Americans and women demanding their rights within the political party, which had not really happened before. And so it was kind of a revolution on many, many levels and many dimensions. And at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. To the extent that it has lasted, it is still the right thing to do. But we are now seeing some of the downsides to those changes. So I'm going to fast forward now to 2016 and Hillary Clinton and this new system of primaries. How did it and Hillary Clinton work together for her to win the nomination? Some of the things that come up when discussing her win still. I hear the terms rigged elections, superdelegates, Bernie Sanders, not really a Democrat. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton won under a set of rules that were essentially the same set of rules that she had run under in 2008. Okay, And so the notion that this was rigged was pretty ridiculous. As Mm -hmm. I show in the book, she had opportunities to influence the sequence of the primaries. She didn't take them. The rules were written far in advance of her beginning her campaign and Bernie Sanders even getting into the campaign. So the rules were set. The notion that this was rigged in either the Democratic or the Republican side really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. These were not rigged systems. What did happen in both the Democratic and the Republican sides in 2016 is that candidates with no experience in the party entered the presidential race and were continually surprised. So Bernie Sanders was continually surprised that there were superdelegates and made a big deal out of them and tried to make them illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And, of course, lost in that was the fact that here was a guy who'd been in Congress for decades and nobody liked him. Can you just quickly explain what a superdelegate is? Sure. Superdelegates were put into the party rules in 1983, and they were all the senators, all the Congress, all the Democratic senators, Democratic congressmen, Democratic governors, and members of the Democratic National Committee, and then some odds and ends like former living presidents and former living vice presidents. And the idea is it was an old-fashioned idea Mm -hmm. in a way that the party leadership, which after all ran on the same ballot as the presidential candidate and had to govern with a Democratic president, actually should have some say in choosing the presidential nominee. After the election, there was a unity commission set up by the Democratic Party to deal with the issues of the 2016 primaries. Your take on that? Well, I was on the unity commission, and I write about it in the book. A lot of what went on in the unity commission was needed 
because, in fact, one of the most negative stories that came out of 2016 was really the way President Obama had ignored the Democratic National Committee and the way it had been mismanaged up to the 2016 election. Now, the result of that was Hillary Clinton stepping in to take control of the party, trying to reduce its debt, etc. Obviously, it would have been much preferable had Barack Obama fixed the party. Hmm. But when Hillary Clinton stepped in to fix up the party, it looked, and with good reason, it looked to the Bernie people as if she was rigging the party somehow. She had a favored position within the party, etc. And that was really a major strategic error on her part. It cast a pall over the entire party apparatus and led to feelings that this was rigged, even though the actual rules of the game had been in place since long before Bernie Sanders got into the race. Donald Trump also claimed the system was rigged on his side, too. What are the differences between the Republican and the Democratic primary systems in general? The biggest difference is that there are winner-take-all systems in the Republican Party. And in the Democratic Party, there are proportional systems. The effect of those is a mathematic effect. So in the Republican Party, winning gets you a lot of delegates. So even if you are, as Trump mostly was, a plurality winner, Mm -hmm. you know, you're winning in a large field, you're winning with 35, 37 percent, you can amass a fair number of delegates. In the Democratic side, if you're not winning by big margins, it's really hard to amass a lot of delegates. So it's like the Democratic Party is tilted toward losers. The Republican Party is tilted towards winners. So in Trump's case, it was rigged in his favor in many ways. It it was bizarre. It (laughs) was rigged in Trump's favor. However, what Trump called rigged was the fact that he discovered a little bit late in the game, that there were these things called delegates, and that delegates were actually not just numbers on the evening news' scorecard. Delegates were actual living, breathing people. Because Trump was controversial within the Republican Party, what was happening in a lot of states were people were getting elected as Trump delegates who really weren't terribly fond of Donald Trump. And he lost control, particularly in Louisiana, of the actual process of selecting who would be his delegates. And that got the campaign very upset, got him calling the whole system rigged. And, of course, it wasn't lost on people that the irony of this was that he was winning in, quote, this rigged system. So how did he win the nomination? And I think from my reading of the new edition, two names come up for me that help explain this, Paul Manafort and Reince Priebus. Yes. Well, I am sympathetic to Chairman Priebus on this because here's what's going on. He sees Donald Trump amassing delegates throughout the spring of 2016, and he sees a lot of brand new voters coming into the Republican Party. And that's, of course, you know, catnip for any party chairman. And these are people who are attracted to the party by, because of Donald Trump. And they're attracted by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not traditional Republican primary voters. And he's got a kind of Sophie's choice here. Mm-hmm. He can go with Donald Trump, who everyone at the Republican convention or lots of people, let's say, at the Republican convention knew was not quite ready for prime time in terms of being president. And there were a lot of doubts about Trump. 
or he could irritate and lose all those new people that Trump was bringing into the Republican Party. So at some point before the convention, he basically cuts a deal with Manafort. Mm. And the deal is that the apparatus of the Republican Party is going to be on Donald Trump's side at the convention. What this means is that they used some pretty strong-arm tactics to basically break the back of the Stop Trump movement. So that's the first part of that story that I tell in the book. Mm -hmm. The second part of the story is that the irony is, and we have just saw it in the race for speaker in the House, you can't beat someone with no one. So the logical person to challenge Trump at the convention was Ted Cruz. He had the next highest block of delegates. And yet Ted Cruz was not at all a beloved person within the Republican Party. It was very interesting, the hostility Mm -hmm. towards Ted Cruz. So Cruz was never able to take advantage of all the doubts about Trump and move that to his own advantage. So between Priebus cutting the deal with Trump and with Manafort and, of course, now against the revelations coming out about Russia, the most significant part of that deal was removing from the Republican Party platform strong language favoring sanctions on Russia. Do you think that if the old school party nominating convention had been in play in 2016 for the Republicans that Donald Trump would not have been He would never have. Yeah, it he, never would never, have happened. Never. And the reason is that the old school convention certainly had its downsides, right? Mm-hmm. But in the old school convention, there was an element of what we call peer review. So senators and congressmen and governors generally controlled blocks of delegates. And they engaged in negotiation with presidential candidates. And they wanted to see a couple things about the candidates. Could they win? And could they govern? You know, were they a serious person? And I'm not saying that governors and senators are necessarily all goody Mm two-shoes, but they want to be able to know, can they work with this person if they become president? There is no way that Donald Trump would have passed that muster. He knew nothing. It was clear in one of the debates, jaws dropped when it was clear he didn't know what the nuclear triad was. And while most Americans don't know what the nuclear triad is, that's not important. What Mm -hmm. is important is that it's the backbone of American defense and the president of the United States ought to know what it is. So Trump would have never passed muster. He would have never gotten taken seriously in the old system. Because that provided a vetting vetting process. It was vetting, yeah. Yeah. It was vetting. And, you know, it wasn't vetting on issues so much. It was vetting on sort of seriousness of the person and their political capacity to win. Now, in the old system, primaries did play a role because there were times when primaries could tell the party bosses how a candidate did. I was just going to inject, I thought you're using the example of John F. Kennedy and how that worked was superb in illustrating that. Yeah, John F. Kennedy's perfect. John Kennedy had to run in a couple primaries, not because the delegates were bound from those primaries. They were not. In those days, the delegates didn't necessarily go with the results of the primary. He had to run because he had to show party leaders that as a Catholic— he could win Protestant votes. The first place he tried to demonstrate this was Wisconsin. 
And while he won the Wisconsin primary, the party leaders, being no fools, looked into the voting data and said, yeah, you won this because there was a huge Catholic vote. We're not convinced. Hmm. So he then had to run in West Virginia. West Virginia did not, at that time, have a large Catholic population. And so if he could win West Virginia, which was largely Protestant, then the party leaders would be convinced. And so for him, winning West Virginia was almost about clinching the nomination because it removed the last doubt in the party leaders' minds about his electability. You end the book by talking about peer review, in fact. It have it slightly broader than just the example you gave here of the party leadership exercising that. Can you explain a little bit what you Yeah, mean? look, we've used this system more or less successfully for nearly half a century. And most of the time, the primary system yielded candidates who the party leaders probably would have also chosen, okay? Certainly Bob Dole, all right? Bill Clinton was a 12-term governor with lots of political talent. Barack Obama was a little bit young that maybe the party leaders would have overlooked him, but he clearly had enormous talent. So most of the time, we've had credible nominees in mm-hmm. both parties. All of a sudden in 2016, the system goes off the rails, And a person with no public sector experience, dubious moral and business background, and some pretty wacky ideas like getting Mexico to build a wall, manage using their sheer celebrity and tapping into deep resentment in the primary electorate, manage to win a nomination. Now, my colleagues in the Democratic Party get really mad when I say this, but frankly, there is nothing that keeps this from happening in the Democratic Party as well. In other words, Mm. this could happen to the Democrats as well. You could get somebody, you could get a rock star, Mm -hmm. right? You could get a rapper who, again, has no business being president of the United States, tapping into something and winning the nomination. And what we're seeing now with the sheer chaos of the Trump presidency is how disastrous this is when there is no place in the system where a vetting takes place. And we get a president like Trump who is frankly causing enormous chaos in the United States and around the world. What should we expect in 2020? Well, in 2020, we've got First of all, I don't know what's going to happen on the Republican side because it's unclear whether Trump will even be president then or if he will run for president Mm -hmm. again. He probably will get a nomination challenge. And frankly, in a one-on-one contest, I think Trump has some problems, even within his own party, just because he has done nothing in his presidency other than play to his base. And that base is a piece of the Republican party and could easily be undone. Mm -hmm. On the Democratic side, you've got a very large field and everybody's all concerned about it. Well, first of all, remember this is a sequential process and the sequence itself clears out the field really quickly. It is hard for me to imagine that somebody who comes in 10th place in the New Hampshire primary will be in the race all the way through. Also, California comes early, and that 
ironically, has the effect of increasing the importance of Iowa and New Hampshire, even though the Californians don't seem to see that. And the people who come out of New Hampshire will go like a shot into California. And out of California, you're going to have people winning delegates. So just like a 10th place winner in New Hampshire will probably be out of the race relatively quickly, somebody who comes out of Super Tuesday with five delegates will also be out of the race pretty quickly. So this thing gets cleared out pretty fast, gets Mm -hmm. cleared out in February and March. And then my guess is we'll have two or more serious candidates who will then fight their way to the finish. Now, if they all continue to be strong, right, we could go into the convention without a front runner, at which point it's possible we go to a second ballot and there the superdelegates will get to vote because that's the change that's happened in the rules. So that's possible. But, you know, this business about, oh, my God, there's 20 candidates, there's 40 candidates, there won't be 40 candidates by the middle of March 2020. Thank you, Elaine. Thanks for getting this new edition out now, too, because we already have some of those candidates emerging on the Democratic side now. (laughs) Thanks again. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. You can find the book Primary Politics, third edition, on our website or wherever you like to look for books. And now, meet Alina Polyakova. My name is Alina Polyakova. I'm a David Rubenstein Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program on the Center for United States in Europe. And I work, I like to say, at the triangle of Russia-Europe-U.S. relations and everything in between. (laughs) The question of where I grew up was always a complicated one. I was born in the Soviet Union and actually grew up in Soviet Ukraine in Kiev. And my family immigrated in 1991, but before the fall of the Soviet Union, to Atlanta, Georgia. So I went straight from the Soviet state to the South in the United States and grew up the rest of my childhood there. I did my graduate work at University of California, Berkeley, in sociologists. So I'm actually a sociologist, not political scientist. And I think looking back, what interested me in sociology specifically, and especially in studying Europe, which is what I studied for my graduate work, I studied the rise of far-right political parties in Europe and spent about two years doing interviews in Ukraine as part of that research. I think If I had to give a reason, on the one hand, I've always been interested in understanding how the world works. And in college, I studied economics, which to me was an unsatisfying answer as to how the world worked. And sociology, I think, started to fill in some of those gaps about society and culture and power that economics didn't really touch in a specific way. I think at the end of the day, sociology interested me for the theoretical concepts and ideas that it allowed me to engage with. And I think this desire for knowledge is probably what drives most of us to be scholars at the end of the day, the desire to understand what is driving the change in the world that we find ourselves embedded in as individuals. I think the most important issue we're facing today is what will the international order look like in the very near future? We're certainly in a time of incredible flux and incredible change. If we look back at the world since the end of 
the last major conflict, which was the Second World War, you know, it looks pretty stable and the trend lines were all pointing in the same direction. And of course, since the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, the transformation that's happened inside of Russia, inside of China, and the internal transformations, I think, happening in democracies today in the United States, in Europe, in Central Eastern Europe, means that we're not looking towards a world that looks like where we came from. And we actually don't know what this new world of geopolitical competition and multipolarity, however you want to define it, will look like. And I think some of the challenges that we're seeing today to democratic institutions, driven by internal grievances, internal political movements across the Atlantic, and also the rise of authoritarian states like Russia and China, I think presents a very concerning picture going forward, a world that looks like it could be dominated by authoritarians versus democracies. I certainly hope that's not the case, but this is, I think, the biggest challenge facing the global order today. So what I'm working on now is not something I ever thought I'd work on, given my background as a qualitative and quantitative researcher. I'm increasingly working more and more on trying to understand tech. I mean, one of the things that's driving the societal global change that I was talking about earlier is this massive digital revolution that the entire world has undergone a very short period of time. And we don't understand and we don't know what the consequences of that are going to be. So one thing I'm trying to understand is what are the implications of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, like decentralized ledger technologies that underlie cryptocurrencies for the future of political warfare, for the future of disinformation, and how state actors and non-state actors will use these tools in malicious ways. So I like to joke that I always look at the dark side of things. And the title of my first book was actually The Dark Side of European Integration. And I think now I'm attracted to tech from this particular point of view, from this particular lens, because I think we need to understand the negative implications, whereas the positive transformative implications of the new digital space that we find ourselves in. So in terms of books, I have to confess that I try to read a lot of fiction. (laughs) Um, I try to stay away for pleasure anyways from reading what I work on all the time. But I think if I could recommend two books, one in the nonfiction space and one in the fun fiction space, I think in the nonfiction space, one book I always go back to and think of very fondly might surprise people. It's called The Civilizing Process by Elias Norbert. And it's a book I read in graduate school that is really about how culture transforms itself through the constant conflict and competition between social classes. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's nothing to do what I'm working on now, but I find it absolutely fascinating. And then I think in the fiction space, I really enjoyed a trilogy by Amitav Ghosh, who's an Indian-British author, I believe. The first book in the trilogy is called Sea of Poppies. And it's historical fiction, but he himself is an anthropologist and uses a lot of original text and original documents from the time period he writes about. And there's three books in the series. Sea of Poppies is the first one, and I really enjoyed reading it. It's about the emerging opium trade in India and the opium wars that take place later between the Brits and the Chinese over Hong Kong. And I think it actually provides a lot of interesting historical context 
for what we see happening today in that part of the world. Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Jessica Pavone and Erica Abalahin provide design and web support. Our intern this semester is Quinn Lucas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, 5 on 45, and Our Events Podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 